Well, do turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 28. We are quickly coming to the end of Matthew's Gospel. Today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. What are you willing to live for? Or more importantly, what are you willing to die for? I trust that we would all agree that there are some things in life that are so weighty and of such great importance that they are not only worth living for, but even if called upon to die for. For the disciples, the truth about Jesus' resurrection from the dead was one of those things that was worth living and dying for. To the best of our knowledge, except for John, who would die of old age, each of the other disciples would pay the ultimate price for their faith in Jesus Christ and for their hope in the resurrection from the dead. Each of these disciples would give their lives in an effort to fulfill their Lord's great commission as they went to make disciples of all the nations. Andrew and his brother Peter would be crucified like their Savior. Although unlike their Savior, Peter would request to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy of dying in the same manner as his Lord. Others like Paul and Bartholomew would be beheaded, but not before Bartholomew was flayed alive with a knife. Some would be stoned. Herod would kill James with the sword. Thomas would be run through with a spear as he took the gospel to India. And our beloved Matthew, the once former tax collector and the author of this gospel account, would be martyred with an axe. They all lived and they all died for the truth and the hope of the resurrection. And I want you to just appreciate that fact for a moment. 
that all of these men, along with many other early Christians, were willing to be tortured, to endure incredible physical pain, to suffer the loss of their reputations, the loss of their livelihood, and ultimately the loss of their lives for the truth of the resurrection. Now let me ask, would they do that for something that they knew was a lie? Would you? Now, don't misunderstand me. It's certainly true that many people have died in the service of a lie. But it's because they believed those lies to be true. This is different. If the conspiratorial story that we read about here is true, that his disciples came by night and stole the body away, if that is true, it would mean that each of these disciples, to a man, knew that Jesus had not been raised from the dead, if that was true. And in which case, they still suffered violence, were tortured, and died for what they knew to be a lie. But let me ask, who had more incentive to lie? The soldiers who had fallen asleep on duty, who received a bribe, who received assurances that their failures would be remediated, or the disciples. The same disciples, remember, who were cowering in fear for their lives. They were afraid of dying. They were afraid of what would happen to them because of their association with Jesus. But now, emboldened by the resurrection appearance and commission of Christ, they are ready and willing to give everything for the sake of the gospel and for the hope of the resurrection. For my part, I find the latter just a bit more persuasive. And I want you to keep this in mind this morning as we look at this attempt to cover up the truth of the resurrection. And in the end, I want to come back to this question. What are you willing to live and to die for? And so as we look at this passage then, I'd like to use the actions and the attitudes of the three groups of people who are mentioned here uh, as a means of working our way through the passage. And so first, we're going to look at these committed women in verse 11, the committed women. Secondly, we're going to look at the conniving leaders in verses 12 through 14. And then finally, we'll look at the commissioned soldiers in verse 15, the committed women the conniving leaders and the commissioned soldiers. Verse 11 begins, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had happened. While who was going? Well, of course, while these committed women were going. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary Uh, This is referring back to the account we looked at two weeks ago. These women who were the disciples of Jesus. Matthew told us in the last chapter, in verse 55, that they had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. They'd followed him in life, and you will remember that while all of the other disciples fled, they had followed him in death. 
They had followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb to see where he would lay the body of Jesus. And they had followed that same path out on resurrection morning to mourn their Lord at the tomb. And in their commitment to the Lord, these faithful women would be the first privileged ones to receive the word of his resurrection. They were first to see the angelic messengers, there to see the seal broken, there to see the stone rolled away, there to see the guards laid out on the ground like dead men. They were there to be welcomed into the empty tomb, and they were there to meet Jesus in the garden. They were there to hear the announcement of the angel who said, He is not here. He has risen, as they said, and they were there to meet Jesus and receive his commission, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. That is where verse 11 picks up. It picks up while they are going. They followed him in life. They followed him in death. And now they follow him in resurrection life. As they follow him in obedience, as they go with fear and great joy, Matthew tells us, going at the behest of their God and King. But note that while they are going, there is another going going on. The guards are also going. Behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. It's not accidental that these two goings are happening at the exact same time. While the women are going to Galilee to proclaim and announce the resurrection of Christ, the guards are going into the city. One commentator notes that while Christ is launching his resurrection mission, his enemies are launching a counter-mission. And isn't that the way that it often works? I quoted Martin Luther uh, earlier in, in this series on Matthew, and I'm reminded of that again, his famous little ditty, that wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil builds a chapel there. Where God is at work, we should not be surprised to find that the enemies of Christ are also at work, and they are busy at work. They are busy to subvert, to undermine, to discredit what the Lord is doing. You might remember the parable of the weeds that Jesus told. He said it would be this way in Matthew chapter 13. He compared the kingdom of heaven to a field where a man went to sow good seed in his field. And in those kingdom parables, the field is symbolic of the world. And the seed is a symbol of the message that the kingdom of Christ and his messengers are proclaiming. And so you remember how the story goes, how the man goes out and he, he sows good seed in his field. But then at night, uh, under the cover of darkness, the farmer's enemies come and they sow weeds among the wheat so that even as the wheat begins to come up and grow, so do all the weeds. And the servants who had helped their master in planting are distressed about the situation and they ask, Master, what should we do? 
Should we go and, and pull out all of the weeds? You remember what the farmer said? He said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Instead, he said, let them grow together until the harvest. And then at the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. The master would ensure that it would all be sorted out in the end. Their work was simply to be faithful in sowing and reaping. So it is here. Even as these committed women are going to proclaim the resurrection of Christ, even as they are sowing seed, the guards are going into the city. The enemies of Christ are planting weeds. They go in stealth and sow these weeds among the wheat. The Great Commission, we might say, has a great countermission. And that great countermission is the subject of verses 12 through 14. So let's look next at these conniving leaders that we find here in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says that when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, most of you are aware that I have just come home from uh, a long but wonderful week at General Assembly. As I mentioned, I'll be giving a report on General Assembly tonight during our evening instruction time. Uh, But we call it General Assembly because it is where all of the commissioned pastors and elders from all the congregations in the OPC assemble together as one deliberative body to take counsel among each other, and to make decisions for the church that are in keeping with the Word of God. That's why we call it General Assembly, because it's a deliberative assembly where we take counsel together. But that assembly has roots. It has roots in the New Testament and in the Old Testament assembling of the elders. This is not something that Presbyterianism invented, Uh, Presbyterians have derived this notion of the assembly of the elders together from the scriptures. And so when we read here that the soldiers had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, we are meant to understand that this is not just some chummy meet and greet. This is the religious assembly. This is the general assembly, (laughs) as it were, of the Jewish church. This is the same Sanhedrin that met in council in chapter 26 and took council together, plotting to put Jesus to death. I cannot imagine the OPC plotting the death of someone. But this is exactly what the church is doing. The Jewish church. It's the same assembly that's fulfilling the words of Psalm 2, that the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Which means that this is not just the whims of a few of the more staunch opponents of Jesus. This is the official decision of the assembly to spread this lie. And so what do they decide to do? 
I doubt they use Robert's rules. And so they probably don't get, you know, wrapped around the axle like we do in our deliberative assemblies. But they come to this decision to spin the narrative and to pay off the soldiers. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we are asleep. Now, this is their MO, isn't it? Money, uh, Bruner says, has an almost demonic quality in Matthew's gospel. They bribed Judas, and now they bribed the soldiers. Do they know what happened? Well, they know some of it. The soldiers reported to them what had happened. They knew there was a terrible earthquake. They would have felt that themselves. Right? And so they would not be surprised when the soldiers reported the earthquake because they would have felt it. It would have been corroborated by their own experience. And then they would have heard the soldiers' testimony that at the same moment this earthquake occurred, this angelic being whose face was shining like lightning descended from heaven, breaking the Roman seal and rolling back the stone. But that's all the soldiers could report. Because after that point, they had passed out in fear like dead men. And when they finally came to their senses, it was just them at an empty tomb. Do the soldiers know what happened to the body of Jesus? Does the Jewish assembly know? Of course not. What do they believe about this? I don't know what they, what they believe. I don't think they know what they believe. But they do know what they must not believe. They know what they must refuse to believe. And they know what they do not want their other fellow Jews to believe. Namely, that Jesus rose from the dead. And why? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, if that is true, then it's all true. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he truly is the Son of God. Then he truly was the Messiah that he claimed to be. That he truly had authority and power to forgive sins. If that were true, it means that they were personally guilty of killing their own Messiah. It means that they had misinterpreted and misunderstood their own scriptures. It means that they would have to admit that they had been wrong about everything. That they would have to publicly humble themselves before the entire nation and the whole world. That they would have to repent and confess their sins and beg the forgiveness of the very one that they had spent their lives hating if the resurrection was true. Because if the resurrection is true, then it's all true. And so rather than believe what all the evidence would lead them to believe, they instead fabricate a counter-narrative. And they contrive to have this story spread among the people. 
They do what Paul says. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they exchange the truth of God for a lie, don't they? And it's not even a good lie. It's not even a convincing lie. Can you imagine the conversations? Yeah. His disciples, um, they came by night while we were sleeping, and they stole the body. They came by night while you were sleeping and stole the body. Right. Right. Well, if you were sleeping, how do you know that they came and stole the body? And also, why were you sleeping? You're Roman guards. You mean to tell me that not just you, but all of you fell asleep at the same time? It's not a very convincing lie. But it doesn't have to be. People are often willing to believe a lie when the truth is inconvenient. And especially when that truth requires not only that you change your mind, but that you change your behavior, that you change the way you live, and you submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Times have really not changed all that much. People would still rather accept a lie when the truth requires them to submit to Christ. And especially when that lie comes with incentives. Especially when that lie comes with bribes. The bribe of money, material wealth. You can have everything that you want And it doesn't matter what you have to say or do to get it. It's all fair game. Or what about the bribe of continued popularity and influence? Like the religious leaders who love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If we say that it's true, we're going to lose our influence. People are ready to believe a lie. And the devil knows He knows how to make it convenient. He knows how to dangle the carrot. He knows how to sell it. That brings us to our final point then about these commissioned soldiers. Verse 14 recounts one of the more convenient incentives for the soldiers. It says, And if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now, as you can imagine, falling asleep on guard duty was not a small crime in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not consider it a misdemeanor or a minor infraction. They considered it actually a treasonous dereliction of duty. In fact, we have a written record of 38 offenses that are worthy of capital punishment, and falling asleep on guard duty was a capital offense. And so it's no small incentive to have the Jewish leadership, who clearly had sway with Pilate, we saw that already, to have this Jewish leadership assure them that they would satisfy him and keep them out of trouble. That incentive of security, that incentive of 
not having to be responsible for your crimes or accountable for your actions is a big incentive. That's a lie that we believe all the time. Pastor Crawford talked about it today. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That I'm not accountable to anyone. That I can live however I please. That's another big lie. It's, it's the big lie that Satan has been dangling in front of us from the very beginning. Did God really say that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? Did he really say that? Death? You'll not surely die. He knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. And that's where the lie goes. If I say in my heart there is no God, I put myself up as God upon the throne. If I don't believe in Jesus, then I don't have to worry about accountability. If I don't believe in Jesus, then I can live however I want. If I don't believe in Jesus, then I don't have to worry about all of those archaic and barbarian moral teachings of his. No one gets to tell me what to do. I can live a life of complete moral freedom if I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is a lie that the world tries to sell us every day in every kind of way, from the movies we watch to the music we listen to. John Lennon put it really well, and he put it to the, one of the catchiest tunes ever written. He asked us to imagine this very thing. To imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. It's easy if you try. There's a big incentive there, but it's all a lie. The Bible says that God has appointed a day when all men will be held accountable for what they have done for what they have believed. And he has appointed a day for judgment and he's giving proof to everyone. And what is the proof that he has given? He's given proof to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. It's easy to imagine. The soldiers easily imagined that they would get away with it. They won't. Not ultimately. God has appointed a day. And so verse 15 tells us the outcome. They took the money, and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. In taking the money, the great commission and the great countermission will run side by side throughout history, won't they? The weeds and the wheat are going to grow up together until that final harvest day when God himself will do the sorting out through his holy angels, and all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, and now he calls all men everywhere to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ, and the resurrection stands as a witness to that reality. And the proof he gives is the proof of the resurrection of his Son. Can I prove to you the truthfulness of the resurrection? 
Well, it depends on what you will accept as evidence, doesn't it? Uh, there are many excellent books that have been written on the evidence for the resurrection. But the fact of the matter is that unless God himself raises you from the dead and breathes life into your heart and grants you faith to trust in his son, all the evidence in the world would not convince you. Like the rich man who pleaded that he might return from his torment and warn his brothers and was told, even if one should rise from the dead, they will not believe. People are dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul says that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. So what hope is there for anyone? The hope is that Paul goes on to say that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that though the great countermission continues to this day, though lies about the resurrection of Christ continue to be believed, The tomb is empty. That is a fact of history. No one denies that the tomb is empty. You can try to explain it away. You can lie about it. You can believe it. But though the great countermission continues, the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ advances because the truth of God is more powerful than the lies of men. And that means that there is no one, no one, who is beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul himself is living proof. Here was the most zealous, venomous Jew who was bent on wiping out the Christian faith until he met the resurrected Christ. And if it was true of Paul, then it is true of the most aggressive atheist. It's true of the most fundamentalist Mormon or the most fundamentalist Muslim. It's true of the most committed humanist. It's true of the most woke and progressive pundit or politician. More importantly, it's true of you. Because each of you know the darkness of your own hearts. you know what you are capable of thinking, saying, and doing. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's rich mercy in Christ. So what will you live for? And what will you die for? Paul answers that question in this way. He says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Beloved, I invite you to join the women and the disciples who lived not for themselves, but for him who had lived and died for them.
One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day, Jesus Christ, who has been raised up in glory and seated at the right hand of the majesty and power and honor and dominion, will render to everyone according to what is due them. He is the perfectly righteous judge. And the amazing thing is that to those who trust in his sacrifice, to those who look to him in faith, to those who place their hopes in his finished work, he will justify them. They, having already been justified, he will invite them and welcome them into his kingdom. He will say, come and enter my beloved. But to those who have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will gather up the weeds to be burned. And so let me call you today to look to the empty tomb, to look to the Savior who has been raised, and to live and die for him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that the tomb is indeed empty and that it remains empty because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, sits enthroned in heaven above. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that that gives us. It gives us hope because it means that our sins have been buried in the grave, never to rise up against us. It means that through the resurrection, we have been once for all justified, forgiven of our sins and clothed in the righteous perfections of Jesus himself. It means that we can live before you in fear and in great joy as you sanctify us and grow us in every grace. Uh, It means that we have power to walk in newness of life because we have been raised up with you and seated in the heavenly places. It means that we have the hope of that eternal inheritance. And so, Lord, would you grant that we would rest ourselves in the truth and the hope of the resurrection, that we would live and die for this glorious fact of history. And we say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the wonderful things about hearing our children profess their faith is we'll often ask them about the Lord's Supper and ask them, what do these elements of bread and wine, what do they represent? That they represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They represent his, not only his life for us, but his death for us. That perfect life that is given up for the forgiveness of our sins. And he gives us this continuing uh, meal as a way of not only remembering his sacrifice, but as a way of having communion and fellowship with him and of having communion and fellowship with each other. And that's why we continue to do this week after week by Christ's own institution. He never wants us to forget. He always wants us to remember all that he has done and in remembering to have that sweetness of fellowship and communion that comes in knowing that our sins have been forgiven that comes in knowing that we have been clothed in the righteous perfections of Jesus, 
that comes in knowing that our sins of last week and last month and this morning are paid for. And that as we walk in faith and repentance, we may be continually assured of his grace and forgiveness to us. That we might know that he is not done with us yet. The end of that great commission is, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of all the days, is what it says in Greek. All the days. I will be with you. And he is with us today by his word and by his spirit. And so even as we come to this supper, let's remember the Lord's death and commune and have fellowship with him as we receive Christ and all of his benefits. But this meal, this meal really belongs to those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to those who have professed their faith in him. It belongs to those who have repented of their sins, who have turned away from them and are desiring to walk in obedience to the Lord. Not that we walked, walk in perfect obedience, but that we desire to walk in obedience. That we belong to the church. If that's you, then you're welcome to come and to join us uh, in these, these elements. But if that's not true of you, if you know that you are not a Christian, if, if you do not belong to Christ, let me encourage you today to let these elements pass. But I would also encourage you not to let Christ pass by you today. He is here to be received in faith. He lives. The tomb is empty. And he reigns. And he calls everyone everywhere to faith and repentance. And so today as we come to this meal... Let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart now for this holy use. Lord, as we approach your table, we do so with humility uh, because we know that we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be baptized and have your name put upon us so that we are your children, sons, and daughters of the Most High. We don't deserve to be invited to the family table. And yet, Lord... You have made us your own. You have bought us with a price. You have redeemed us. And you call us to come and to have this meal with you and with one another to encourage us in our faith and our hope and in our love. And so we pray now that you would take these ordinary elements and you would set them apart now for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, uh, that you would cause us to truly feed upon Christ, that even as we drink wine and eat bread and it nourishes our physical frame, Lord, we pray that we might partake of Christ and all of his benefits for our spiritual nourishment and growth. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.